0: All right, the Word of God this morning is our priority now, and that is Numbers chapter 13. I began a series of messages last week talking about moving from vision to victory. Moving from vision to victory, we're talking about stepping into our God-ordained destiny. Not only for our lives, but for our church as well, because God has an ordained destiny for each and every one of us. He has that for each and every church as well. And what we're doing is we're following the children of Israel from the moment they left Israel and they went through the desert and headed toward the promised land. And I mentioned to you last week that we're not talking about trying to get to a destination or just to as a place of arrival. For the children of Israel, the land was not just their destination. Though they were going to a destination to a specific land, That was not God's only intention just to get them to a piece of property. But God's full intention was to get them to a place of destiny because God's destiny for them was to reveal or to bring about the salvation of the world and He wanted to bring about that salvation of the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. When God gave that promise to them, He gave that to Abraham originally, their forefather, And so God gave them not just a destination, hey, I want to get you to a place of property, and I want you to just live there and settle and die and have children, and more people settle and die, but God said, I'm getting you to a place of destiny because I want to bring about salvation to all of mankind through my son, Jesus Christ. So it wasn't just a destination, it was a destiny that he had in mind for the children of Israel. And just the same way, God has a destiny for each and every one of us. He has a destiny for our church as well. And many times, or not just many times, but even when God gets us to a destiny, God even wants to take us to higher heights and deeper depths. He wants to take us to new places of destiny. He doesn't want to take us to a place of arrival and say, hey, I've got you to that place. Now I want you to just live and die. That's all that I have in mind for you. God wants to lead you to a place where you are living and thriving in His chosen place a blessing and fruition. God wants you to fulfill His divine plan that He has for you. He, he wants each and every church to be in that place where they are fulfilling and living and thriving in that chosen place of His blessings and fruition that He has for them. Last week as we began this, talking about stepping into our destiny, we said last week that first of all, we have to be ready. We've got to get ourselves ready. Ready? If we're going to get ourselves ready, we've got to move from that place that God's given a vision. If we're going to get the victory, we've got to get ourselves ready. In other words, there is a journey involved. There is a process to get us ready if we're going to move from vision to victory. And last week we saw that Israel, remember, they were only 10 days away from the promised land when they left Egypt. It was a quick journey, but God didn't take them the quick journey. God took them the long journey. God took them the long way, and we said last week, God showed us as they left Israel, they were not ready. And we saw last week how they were not ready. They really needed, first of all, a new heart. God took them that longer journey because they needed a new heart. Now remember last week, we said that longer journey, going that southern route there around through the desert, was really only about a one to two year route. And I say one to two year route because... It was a longer route, but God also had in mind He wanted them to get the tabernacle and things ready. God had all of that planned. So it was going to be a little bit longer of a journey and it was a large group of people. But today what we're going to see is it took them much longer than just a one to two year journey. It took them 40 years to get to their place of destiny. Why did it take them so long to get there? Have you ever wondered to yourself, why have I not received some of the promises of God in my life? That God has given me visions and dreams, but they don't happen in my life? I'm always hoping for things, but I don't receive them? Have you ever been wondering in your life, it feels like I'm just always circling around the mountain, I, I feel like I'm always just wandering in the desert? Have you ever been going through life and like, boy, I just always have hopes, I feel like I'm just stuck. I know a lot of churches feel that exact same way. They feel like they're just stuck. They they have hopes and dreams and lots of prayers, sometimes even lots of prayer meetings to go forward and do great things, but they're just stuck. They've got the dreams and the visions, they pray, they hope, but they're stuck in the desert. You ever wonder why that is? Like Israel... Many people not only need a new heart like we talked about last week, but in today's message, we're going to see they not only need a new heart, but they need a new mouth. A new heart last week, today, we're going to see they need a new mouth. Numbers chapter 13, beginning with verse 27, God told the Israelites, He told Moses and the leaders to send 12 spies Into the promised land to check out the promised land and see what it's like, and to come back and give a report on the land. And Numbers 13, beginning verse 27, they come back and they give their report. Let's pick up the story there. And they gave Moses this account We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey, and here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live there near the sea and along the Jordan. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. And we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we look the same to them. Chapter 14. And that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we've passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites, and the Lord said to them, pay attention to this, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? This morning what I want to talk about is the ugly power of complaining and negativity and criticizing. And then at the end I want to turn the corner and I want to talk about how Jesus can give you a new mouth. You see, Israelite, again... Could have spent only one to two years in the desert headed toward the promised land. They were on their way to their place of destiny, but because of their complaining and their negative attitude and their critical spirit, they spent an extra 38 years wandering in the desert. And not one of them, where the Bible says at least those under uh, or over the age of 20 years old, none of them received the promise of God of entering to the promised land. They received the promise. They were on their way to that place of destiny, but they missed it. What a sad story it really is. God gave them a promise, but because of complaining and negativity and a critical spirit, they missed the promise of God in their life. Let's talk about the bad part first, kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly, all right? Let's talk about the ugly power of complaining and negativity and criticism or a critical spirit. The first part that I want us to look at today, the ugly power of it is this, is that it will stunt your spiritual growth, stunted growth. Did you know that a shark is one of the few species on earth that will adapt to its environment? In other words, a shark will grow in proportion, they say, to its environment. Now, most all sharks live in the ocean, other than those that have been brought in, I guess, into uh, into the environment of maybe um, maybe a zoo or something like that. But they practically all live out in the ocean, so they all reach their full potential, whether it be four, five, six, eight foot, whatever it may be, they reach their full potential. But they say, scientists say that. If you were to take a baby shark with the potential of reaching eight foot in length, and you were to take that baby shark and you were to put him in a six-foot uh, fish tank, that baby shark will adapt to that environment and will only reach the, uh, the potential of about six foot, or about one-fourth in size in that six-foot tank. In other words, that shark has the potential to be eight foot long. But because of its environment, its growth will be stunted and it will only reach about one-fourth of its size. It will only grow to about a foot and a half long. And you see, it's possible for us as believers as well to stunt our spiritual growth when our lives are out of alignment with God's Word. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 says that we are to do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Do everything without complaining or arguing. That applies to every relationship that we have. Our relationship with God and our relationship with mankind. Our vertical and our horizontal relationships. That means that we are to be blameless and pure before God. I don't know about you, but I've done a lot of complaining to God before. I've even had to check and examine my prayers before. I've done a lot of complaining to God. How many of you be honest with me? And, and you say, I've done some complaining to God before, right? We've done a lot of that. But it says that we are to do everything. So our relationship with God, we're to guard ourselves that we do not complain or even argue with God. But at the same time, we're to be harmless toward other people that we do not complain or argue with other people. In other words, the goal of this verse is saying that we should live a faultless and holy life before God and others as well. In other words, we are not to speak evil only of evil situations. We should avoid that at all times anyway. But in the way that we communicate, even amongst other believers, the way that we treat each other in our words, whether in public conversations, or private conversations, whether we're at home or at church or wherever we may be, everything should be done without complaining and without arguing. We should even also beware of a critical spirit. Criticism, speaking of a critical spirit here, the Bible uses another word talking about fault-finding or judging other people with a harsh spirit. The different, There is a big difference here between helping someone improve, or what we might sometimes call constructive criticism. That can be a good thing. Constructive criticism may be honesty, but there's a difference between constructive criticism and saying, I'm trying to help you out, and then having a critical spirit. You see, biblical criticism, or that constructive criticism, is helpful and loving, and it's based upon truth. And it will always reflect the fruit of the Spirit. If not, it's always better left unsaid. If you speak something that is spoken to cause hurt, or you speak it because you want to drive a point home and you want to communicate a message, a hidden message, just to get at someone else, it is wrong and sinful. That critical spirit is wrong. And a critical spirit, a person with a critical spirit, is never pleased. They expect and they find disappointment in everything that they look at. They make harsh judgments. They arrogantly judge and they're easily provoked. They find something wrong in everyone and in everything. You know, they, you know what I'm talking about? You ever been around somebody just with a critical spirit? Yeah, I know. I've seen them before. They find something wrong with everything. And they never carry about them any hope of ever being pleased. Beware of those with a critical spirit because God says, that He will be as hard on you as you are on others. In other words, He will treat you the exact same way that you treat those people with that critical spirit that you have. I like how Joyce Meyer says it like this, you cannot have a positive life and a negative mouth. In other words, it will stunt your spiritual growth. The second thing that I want us to see about the ugly side of the negativity and the criticism, and all of this other, is that it divides and conquers. What I want to share with you right now, something that comes from Dr. Neil Kennedy. He is the founder of Five Star Man Ministry, and also wrote a book uh, that I'm taking this from, called The Seven Laws of Increase and Order. This is something that um, I've wanted to share three different times since the month of October, in fact, I've carried it with me to the pulpit uh, twice here and once on a Wednesday night Bible study, but God has put a check in my spirit. It's not time to share it yet. Today I've got the release to share it. He calls this the seven stages of division. The seven stages of division. And what he talks about, he talks about uh, marriages and churches combined together. The scripture that I read in the book of Numbers... Uh, today in the NIV, uses the word complaining. If you've got the King James Version, the word that is used there is called murmur. Okay, And so he uses the word murmur, and he gives uh, a, a full definition of murmur, and he talks about how murmuring leads to division. And he goes through these seven stages, and I want to give you these seven stages of division, because it happens not only in marriages, It happens in churches, you can see it happen in families, you might have even seen this happen in job situations. But everything that ends up dividing or being divided always starts with murmuring or with complaining. Murmur, what is murmur? Murmur is just an unanswered complaint to a legitimate problem that can cause division. He explains this, that most marriages don't end over one big problem. They end over several small issues or complaints that compile into one lump sum. Or most churches, he says, don't divide over doctrine or spiritual matters. They divide over smaller issues and unanswered problems. And so he says here are the seven stages uh, people go through to ultimately bring about division. Number one is the murmuring. Murmuring is when someone has a complaint and they don't know how to deal with it properly. He says they begin to murmur. He says that may be legitimate, but instead uh, they resort to immature whining. Murmur means a secret displeasure not openly avowed. In other words, they don't deal with the person. And that's what should happen. When there is a complaint, you should deal with the person. Don't, don't take it into your own hands, or what he begins to describe here. here, he says, that they don't deal with the person, but they secretly dwell on it. They make assumptions. They talk about it. They gossip. They characterize the person, or they characterize the situation. And he says that murmuring is never voiced to leadership, or it's never voiced to the spouse directly. And the person, he says, they're too insecure to approach the leader, but they will go to others with their complaints. He says that Israel treated God the same way in the desert. You begin to study the 14 different times that they murmured. They always talked about it, but they never went to the leaders over their murmuring. In fact, 14 different times, the Bible says that they murmured. The first five times, the Bible says that Moses interceded for them and they found grace. But beginning with number six, after the sixth time, you find that the grace of God was removed and they had to deal with the consequences that God brought upon the nation. And again, you notice only two people that left Egypt under the age of 20 years old, and that is Joshua and Caleb ever entered into the promised land. They're murmuring against God. You also notice in the scripture, that it says that they're murmuring they complained against Moses, but God said that no Moses, they're complaining it is actually against me. I take it personally because God always ordains leadership. And God always He always flows through leadership. He doesn't flow around it, He flows through it. And so God said they might be complaining against you, but Moses in reality, the complaint is personal, it's against me. And so it goes from murmuring, the second stage of division then leads to what the Bible calls strife. Unresolved complaining matures into strife. Strife is defined as the rub that you feel when you're near someone that you have an issue with. You know what I'm talking about? Just something doesn't feel right? Rather than being drawn to the person, you feel repelled. Just don't want to feel, you you don't want to be around them. The rub that you feel. You might be friendly, you might be nice, but You'd just rather kind of move on your way. That is called strife in the Bible. And in this stage, the complaint still goes unspoken. In fact, now the complainer will not speak to you, but make no mistake, they will continue to speak to others. And the Bible says that where there is strife, there is every evil work. And a person at this level, the Bible describes to us, as in a dangerous position because what happens is a bitter root will take up in their heart and it will cause them to begin to take action. That leads to the third step of what the Bible calls an evil work. That is where the embittered person now begins to take action against the leadership, or in the marriage they will begin to take action against their spouse. Neil Kennedy says that their immaturity then positions them to work against the leaders or against their spouse. They will begin to strategize their offense They begin to plan to themselves, what can I do to take care of this matter? What can I do to take care of this person in this position? They begin to turn to selfish thoughts and actions. In their minds, it's spiritual, and they will even justify them spiritually. And they begin to scheme, and that leads them to the fourth stage, which is known as manipulation. In the stage of manipulation, now the person begins to maneuver with their influence. Often they will look for a position or an office to begin to force people to do things their way. The Bible, uh, Paul says in the Bible that these people will draw others their way. That's normal behavior for a spiritual wolf. They begin to draw people into isolation, away from the truth, and away from protection and strength of the fellowship. They begin to bring people into their camp and they begin to form a team of uh, 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 of believers and they begin to form their assault because it's an act of manipulation. They will often begin to sow seeds of discord and they will begin to make comments of doubt and begin to sow seeds of doubt in people's minds. And they will begin to cause division and begin to cause others to try to come to their way of thinking by making comments. Well, did you know? And well, I know this. And if this happens, then this is going to happen over there. The Bible says in Galatians chapter five, verse number twenty, that those who sow deeds, seeds of discord, or those who sow discord, are actually out, acting out of their sinful nature and not living in step with the Spirit. That leads to the fifth stage of division, and that is what the Bible now calls witchcraft. Now, some of you think, "Wait a second, Pastor. Now, you know, you this Neil Kennedy. I mean, wow, witchcraft. That's like..." you know, the lady with the witch's hat and stirring up, you know, a pot of stew over there and it's got all this stuff. Now, that's not what the Bible calls witchcraft. Witchcraft is now, uh, witchcraft, it now moves into a spiritual force of evil. You see what happens, bitterness begins to take up a root in the heart, or it begins to take a heart, bitterness in the heart begins to cause the person to give place for the devil to work in their life. I guess we're even talking about believers. You see, witchcraft is defined as this. It is a natural action or words. It could even be a thus saith the Lord or a prayer by which the hope is to bypass the supernatural forces, which is God, in order to get a natural reaction for the purpose of personal aggrandizement. In other words, they want to make themselves more powerful and greater. Let me read that definition again. Witchcraft is a natural action, such as words or a prayer, a thus saith the Lord, by which the hope is to bypass the supernatural forces. In other words, I'm going to take matters in my own hands. I'm going to bypass the route of God And I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to do a thus saith the Lord. I'm going to be all spiritual about it. And I'm going to bypass the route of God in order to place myself in a position to get my way. To make myself look good. To pull my strings of power. The Bible calls that witchcraft. People in this stage are often deceived into even thinking they're doing the will of God. They will practice, people who practice witchcraft often feel spiritually superior. Jude chapter 8 says, however, those people hate authority. Excuse me, Jude verse number 8. That leads to the sixth stage of division, and that is rebellion. 1 Samuel 15 verse 23 says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. In this stage, a deceptive spirit usurping The God ordained authority of leaders, or again, of of the headship or the household, or maybe the other partner, either way, it begins to lead the individual. And sadly, this person has taken the way of Lucifer, and they've sought to overthrow, who sought to overthrow the throne of God. Ezekiel said that the reason Lucifer fell was his arrogance. Pride filled his heart. You see, rebellion is a spirit that leads people to overestimate their worth above established authority. And finally, that leads to the seventh stage, and that is the actual division. And God hates the spirit of division. You see, everything about God is about perfect unity. From the Trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's all about perfect unity. To the covenant of the marriage relationship, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. To the church, the body of Jesus Christ, God doesn't want anyone to ever bring division and to divide the body of Christ. To the family, whatever it may be, God hates the spirit of division. And you see, the beginning of the end is found... Always in a murmur, which leads to strife, to evil work, a manipulation of witchcraft and rebellion, ending in division. And the Bible tells us that when Lucifer led his rebellion, he took one-third of the angels with him, but yet God's final word was to remove them from their positions of authority. You see, complaining and negativity and a critical spirit have an amazing, powerful impact on our lives and those around us. Can you see why God Doesn't want all of that junk. It stunts our spiritual growth and it divides and it conquers. God hates that stuff. It's destructive, it leaves a path of hurt, and it leaves a path of destroyed souls. So, how can we turn the tide? That's the ugly side. That's the part I don't hear any amens and I didn't expect to. All right, I wasn't preaching for any any amens there? Because that's the the ugly side of it. Let's turn the corner here, all right? Maybe I can get some amens there. Let's turn some corner, all right? How can God give us a new mount? Because you see, God's desire is for us to turn the corner. God wants to get us to that place of destiny. God doesn't want us wandering in the desert for 38 years, right? God doesn't want us to keep circling the mountain. God doesn't want us to keep in that place, but God wants us to get to that place that He has designed and that He has prepared for us. Again, Jesus prayed, asked, told us to pray, your, His kingdom come, His will be done. He wants that to take place in your life and for your family and for our church and for other churches. So how can we do it? Well, again, we need a new heart. And we need a new mouth. And so I want to give to us five quick things here this morning. And I formed this into a prayer because I believe that's what we need to do. We need to make it a matter of prayer. Let me give these things to you. Number one, we need to pray, Jesus, change my heart. Again, kind of a part of coming off of last week, Lord, we need a new heart. In Luke 6, uh, verse number 45, Jesus said that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. In other words, whatever, whatever comes out of your mouth, it is a mirror of what's in your soul. It's a mirror of what's in your heart. And you can say what you want, But it's really a reflection of what's on the inside. And we can look good on the outside. We can impress others. We can give big offerings. We can be all spiritual and everything else. But really, you want a good reflection of what's on the inside. Listen to what's being said from out of the mouth. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, if we're full of complaining and negativity and criticism and judging other people harshly, all we do is destroy and defy And we've only deceived ourselves. We need to pray, Jesus, change my heart. Change me from the inside out. Number two, we need to pray, Jesus, muzzle my mouth. Psalm 39, verse number one, said the psalmist said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. Just as a wild animal has a potential to harm or to kill. Just as it needs a muzzle put up on its mouth if it's around people in order that it could be safe. We need to pray the same way. Jesus, slap your hand over my mouth so that I can keep away from complaining. Slap your hand, Holy Spirit, over my mouth so that I'm not negative. Slap your hand over my mouth so that I'm... Keep away from criticizing other people. Put a muzzle, God, over my mouth so that I don't say those things that will hurt and destroy and divide. God, put a muzzle over my mouth. Number three, we need to pray, Jesus, give me the right words to say. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse number 10, the Apostle Paul said, Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Have you ever thought about the words that you speak? I saw a great thing on Facebook this week. Uh, I meant to try to put the picture up here and I forgot about it, but it was a person. When I first saw the picture, I thought it was a person filled with tattoos, but what the picture was, a person had All the words that they speak, they had written all over their body with an ink pen. And the caption, I wish I could remember exactly what it said, but the caption was something like this. If the words that you spoke were written on the outside, and and what kind of message would be portrayed on the outside? In other words, are your words positive or are they negative? The words that you say, do they have a positive or do they have a negative impact? In these verses, Paul was calling himself to a higher level of accountability by asking other people, will you pray for me that my words will have the right impact? Will you pray for me that I can say the right things at the right time? Pray for me that every time I speak, every time I open my mouth, I will have the right words to say. Pray for me that my words will honor God Pray for me that when my words go forth, they will accomplish the will of God, that my words may be sown forth, that they may bring fruition, that they may be sown forth as seeds. Think about that. Your words that you speak, they are like seeds that are being cast forth. What kind of fruit are they going to bring up? Are they going to bring about a positive fruit that people can feed off of and that they can partake of and say, man, that is good. Or are you speaking forth seeds that are going to grow up thorns that are going to damage and hurt other people? Are they going to be nasty seeds? Are they going to be like, are you you casting forth seeds that are going to grow forth prunes and when people take a bite of it? Nobody wants anything to do with that. It, It has a negative effect on their life. What kind of seeds are you casting forth with the words that you speak? Number four, we need to pray, Jesus, be pleased when I speak. May these words of my mouth, Psalm 1914, the psalmist said, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Again, if you ever stop to ask yourself, Is God pleased with what I'm saying? Is God pleased with not only what I'm saying, but is God pleased with the effect of the words and with how I'm treating the person that I'm speaking to? Is this how God expects me to treat the people that I'm speaking to? May God be pleased with every word that comes forth out of our mouth. And finally, number five. Jesus, help me to lift up and never tear down. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse number 11. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. I gave the illustration here several weeks ago about how a hammer has two sides to it. One side is used to build and the other side is used to tear down. Your words have the ability to build or to tear down. The choice is up to you. You can speak words, to tear people apart. Or you could speak words to build them up. I want to encourage you today to pray. First Thessalonians 5.11 Jesus helped me to speak words to lift people up. To build them up. I choose the right side of the hammer. The side to build them up and to never tear them down.